Welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is your host, D.B. Spitzer. We are in week two of the collected works of Poe, Edgar Allan Poe. And uh, yeah, so we're going to have that going on. And here's the thing. It's all going to drop on Tuesday. All of it. Black Clock Audio Tales drops on Tuesday. It's going to be a week worth of stuff, but it's all going to drop on Tuesday. And I'll step it out on Tuesday. So your podcast player will know what order to play it in instead of trying to play it all at once. So yeah, this is going to be interesting. We're going to see how this works and let us know if you like it, if you hate it, if you want us to switch any other way, if you want us to do things any other way. And yeah, this is going to be the intro for all week. So thank you so much for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos Black Clock Audio Tales. Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans Holiday Special and Zero Episode Articulate Warbling. Gonna try and come up with some other stuff. Maybe, I don't know, maybe maybe, maybe you have an idea and you want to contact pgttcm.com and contact us there. Or you want to contact us on Facebook at pgttcm.com or Black Clock Audio Tales or we're on, on Facebook, we're People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos Black Clock Audio Tales. And you can always contact Zach from Articulate Warbling by checking out Articulate Warbling. And Dave's got something for Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, but I can't remember the thing for it right now. But hey, uh, I'll let you know once we get closer to episode one coming out on that. As always, this episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com and founditemclothing.com. Look cool with a vintage-looking t-shirt from your favorite cult film from the 80s and 90s. Maybe the 70s, too, hey. And what about those bunny slippers? Keeping your feet warm, keeping your feet dry. Well, I mean, don't go walking around in novelty slippers outside. You're going to get your feet wet. What? Stay inside. Stay warm. Watch some cult films. Bunnyslippers.com and founditemclothing.com a sponsor of PGTTCM and Black Clock Audio Tales since, I don't know, 2017? Something like that. All right. On with the show, Edgar Allan Poe. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and PGTTCM.com. And, hey, keep the show going. Donate a buck or five to PayPal.com slash... No, PayPal.me slash PGTTCM or going to pgttcm.podbean.com and clicking the patron button and donating something. We'll figure out something in the future for, I don't know, donating more than a dollar, but if you donate a dollar, we'll say your name and contact me so I know that you did it because, I don't know, for some reason I'm not getting messages about that kind of stuff. And if you've donated money and I didn't say your name, Message me on Facebook, and I'll say your name, and be like, hey, this person donated money. Anyway, Ed Allan Poe, here we go. Read by Morgan Saletta. The Collected Works of Edgar Allan Poe. Raven Edition. Volume number two. Chapter two. The Thousand and Second Tale of Scheherazade. Truth is stranger than fiction. Old saying. Having had occasion lately, in the course of some oriental investigations, to consult the Tell Me Now Is It Urnot, a work which, 
like the Zohar of Simeon Jakaides, is scarcely known at all, even in Europe, and which has never been quoted, to my knowledge, by any American, if we accept, perhaps, the author of the Curiosities of American Literature, having had occasion, I say, to turn over some pages of the first, mentioned very remarkable work, I was not a little astonished to discover that the literary world has hitherto been strangely in error respecting the fate of the vizier's daughter, Scheherazade, as that fate is depicted in the Arabian Nights, and that the denouement there given, if not altogether inaccurate, as far as it goes, is at least to blame in not having gone very much farther. For full information on this interesting topic, I must refer the inquisitive reader to the Izzet's Urnot itself, but, in the meantime, I shall be pardoned for giving a summary of what I there discovered. It will be remembered that, in the usual version of the tales, a certain monarch, having good cause to be jealous of his queen, not only puts her to death, but makes a vow, by his beard and the prophet, to espouse each night the most beautiful maiden in his dominions, and the next morning to deliver her up to the executioner. Having fulfilled this vow for many years to the letter, and with a religious punctuality and method that conferred great credit upon him as a man of devout feeling and excellent sense, he was interrupted one afternoon, no doubt at his prayers, by a visit from his grand vizier, to whose daughter, it appears, there had occurred an idea. Her name was Scheherazade, and her idea was that she would either redeem the land from the depopulating tax upon its beauty, or perish after the approved fashion of all heroines in the attempt. Accordingly, and although we do not find it to be leap year, which makes the sacrifice more meritorious, she deputes her father, the Grand Vizier, to make an offer to the king of her hand. This hand the king eagerly accepts. He had intended to take it at all events, and had put off the matter from day to day, only through fear of the Vizier. But, in accepting it now, he gives all parties very distinctly to understand that, Grand Vizier or no Grand Vizier, he has not the slightest design of giving up one iota of his vow or of his privileges. When, therefore, the fair Scheherazade insisted upon marrying the king, and did actually marry him, despite her father's excellent advice not to do anything of the kind, when she would and did marry him, I say will I, nil I, it was with her beautiful black eyes as thoroughly open as the nature of the case would allow. It seems, however, that this politic damsel, who had been reading Machiavelli beyond doubt, had a very ingenious little plot in her mind. On the night of the wedding she contrived, upon I forget what specious pretense, to have her sister occupy a couch sufficiently near that of the royal pair to admit of easy conversation from bed to bed, and, a little before cock crowing, she took care to awaken the good monarch, her husband, who bore her none the worse will because he intended to wring her neck on the morrow. She managed to awaken him, I say, although, on account of a capital conscience, and an easy digestion, he slept well, by the profound interest of a story, about a rat and a black cat, I think, which she was narrating, all in an undertone, of course, to her sister. When the day broke, it so happened that this history was not altogether finished, and that Scheherazade, in the nature of things, could not finish it just then, since it was high time for her to get up and be bowstrung, a thing very little more pleasant than hanging, only a trifle more genteel. The king's curiosity, however, prevailing, I am sorry to say, even over his sound religious principles, induced him for this once to postpone the fulfillment of his vow until next morning, for the purpose and with the hope of hearing that night how it fared in the end with the black cat, a black cat I think it was, and the rat. The night having arrived, however, the Lady Scheherazade not only put the finishing stroke to the black cat and the rat, 
The rat was blue, but before she well knew what she was about, found herself deep in the intricacies of a narration, having reference, if I am not altogether mistaken, to a pink horse, with green wings, that went, in a violent manner, by clockwork, and was wound up with an indigo key. With this history, the king was even more profoundly interested than the other, and, as the day broke before its conclusion, notwithstanding all the queen's endeavors to get through with it in time for the bowstringing, there was again no resource but to postpone that ceremony as before for twenty-four hours. The next night there happened a similar accident with a similar result, and then the next, and then again the next, so that, in the end, the good monarch, having been unavoidably deprived of all opportunity to keep his vow during a period of no less than one thousand and one nights, either forgets it altogether by the expiration of this time, or gets himself absolved of it in the regular way, or, what is more probable, breaks it outright, as well as the head of his father confessor. At all events, Scheherazade, who, being lineally descended from Eve, fell heir, perhaps, to the whole seven baskets of talk, which the latter lady, we all know, picked up from under the trees in the Garden of Eden, Scheherazade, I say, finally triumphed, and the tariff upon beauty was repealed. Now, this conclusion, which is that of the story as we have it upon record, is no doubt excessively proper and pleasant, but alas, like a great many pleasant things, it is more pleasant than true, and I am indebted altogether to the is-its-or-not for the means of correcting the error. Le mieux, says a French proverb, est l'ennemi du bien, and, in mentioning that Scheherazade had inherited the seven baskets of talk, I should have added that she put them out at compound interest until they amounted at seventy-seven. My dear sister, said she, on the thousand and second night, I quote the language of the isits or not in this point verbatim. My dear sister, said she, now that all this little difficulty about the bowstring has blown over, and that this odious tax is so happily repealed, I feel that I have been guilty of great indiscretion in withholding from you and the king, who I am sorry to say snores, a thing no gentleman would do, the full conclusion of Sinbad the Sailor. This person went through numerous other and more interesting adventures than those which I related, but the truth is, I felt sleepy on the particular night of their narration, and so was seduced into cutting them short, a grievous piece of misconduct for which I only trust that Allah will forgive me. But even yet it is not too late to remedy my great neglect, and as soon as I have given the king a pinch or two in order to wake him, so far that he may stop making that horrible noise, I will forthwith entertain you, and him if he pleases, with the sequel of this very remarkable story. Hereupon the sister of Scheherazade, as I have it from the Izzet's Wernot, expressed no very particular intensity of gratification, but the king, having been sufficiently pinched, at length ceased snoring, and finally said, Hum, and then, Who? When the queen, understanding these words, which are no doubt Arabic, to signify that he was all attention, and would do his best not to snore any more, the queen, I say, having arranged these matters to her satisfaction, re-entered thus, at once, into the history of Sinbad the sailor. At length, in my old age, these are the words of Sinbad himself, as retailed by Scheherazade, at length, in my old age, and after enjoying many years of tranquility at home, I became once more possessed of a desire of visiting foreign countries, and one day, without acquainting any of my family with my design, I packed up some bundles of such merchandise as was most precious and least bulky, and, engaged a porter to carry them, went with him down to the seashore, to await the arrival of any chance vessel that might convey me out of the kingdom into some region which I had not as yet explored. Having deposited the packages upon the sands, we sat down beneath some trees, 
and looked out into the ocean in the hope of perceiving a ship, but during several hours we saw none whatever. At length I fancied that I could hear a singular buzzing or humming sound, and the porter, after listening a while, declared that he also could distinguish it. Presently it grew louder, and then still louder, so that we could have no doubt that the object which caused it was approaching us. At length, on the edge of the horizon, we discovered a black speck, which rapidly increased in size until we made it out to be a vast monster, swimming with a great part of its body above the surface of the sea. It came toward us with inconceivable swiftness, throwing up huge waves of foam around its breast, and illuminating all that part of the sea through which it passed with a long line of fire that extended far off into the distance. As the thing drew near, we saw it very distinctly. Its length was equal to that of three of the loftiest trees that grow, and it was as wide as the great hall of audience in your palace, O most sublime and munificent of the caliphs. Its body, which was unlike that of ordinary fishes, was as solid as a rock, and of a jetty blackness throughout all that portion of it which floated above the water, with the exception of a narrow blood-red streak that completely begirdled it. The belly, which floated beneath the surface, and of which we could get only a glimpse now and then as the monster rose and fell with the billows, was entirely covered with metallic scales, of a color like that of the moon in misty weather. The back was flat and nearly white, and from it there extended upwards of six spines, about half the length of the whole body. The horrible creature had no mouth that we could perceive, but, as if to make up for this deficiency, it was provided with at least four score of eyes that protruded from their sockets like those of the green dragonfly, and were arranged all around the body in two rows, one above the other, and parallel to the blood-red streak, which seemed to answer the purpose of an eyebrow. Two or three of these dreadful eyes were much larger than the others, and had the appearance of solid gold. Although this beast approached us, as I have said before, with the greatest rapidity, it must have been moved altogether by necromancy, for it had neither fins like a fish, nor web feet like a duck, nor wings like the seashell which is blown along in the manner of a vessel, nor yet did it writhe itself forward as do the eels. Its head and its tail were shaped precisely alike, only, not far from the latter, there were two holes that served for nostrils, and through which the monster puffed out its thick breath with prodigious violence and with a shrieking, disagreeable noise. Our terror at beholding this hideous thing was very great, but it was even surpassed by our astonishment when, upon getting a nearer look, we perceived upon the creature's back a vast number of animals about the size and shape of men, and altogether much resembling them, except that they wore no garments, as men do, being supplied, by nature no doubt, with an ugly, uncomfortable covering, a good deal like cloth, but fitting so tight to the skin as to render the poor wretches laughably awkward, and put them apparently to severe pain. On the very tips of their heads were certain square-looking boxes, which, at first sight, I thought might have been intended to answer as turbans, but I soon discovered that they were excessively heavy and solid, and I therefore concluded they were contrivances designed, by their great weight, to keep the heads of the animals steady and safe upon their shoulders. Around the necks of the creatures were fastened black collars, badges of servitude, no doubt, such as we keep on our dogs, only much wider and infinitely stiffer, so that it was quite impossible for these poor victims to move their heads in any direction without moving the body at the same time, and thus they were doomed to perpetual contemplation of their noses, a view puggish and snubby in a wonderful, if not positively in an awful degree. When the monster had nearly reached the shore where we stood, 
It suddenly pushed out one of its eyes to a great extent, and emitted from it a terrible flash of fire, accompanied by a dense cloud of smoke, and a noise that I can compare to nothing but thunder. As the smoke cleared away, we saw one of the odd man-animals standing near the head of the large beast with a trumpet in his hand, through which, putting it to his mouth, he presently addressed us in loud, harsh, and disagreeable accents that, perhaps, we should have mistaken for language had they not come altogether through the nose. Being thus evidently spoken to, I was at a loss how to reply, as I could in no manner understood what was said, and in this difficulty I turned to the porter, who was near swooning through a fright, and demanded of him his opinion as to what species of monster it was, what it wanted, and what kind of creatures those were that so swarmed upon its back. To this the porter replied, as well as he could for trepidation, that he had once before heard of this sea-beast, that it was a cruel demon, with bowels of sulphur and blood of fire, created by evil genie as the means of inflicting misery upon mankind, that the things upon its back were vermin, such as sometimes infest cats and dogs, only a little larger and more savage, and that these vermin had their uses, however evil for, through the torture they caused the beast by their nibbling and stingings, it was goaded into that degree of wrath which was requisite to make it roar and commit ill, and so fulfill the vengeful and malicious designs of the wicked genie. This account determined me to take to my heels, and, without once even looking behind me, I ran at full speed up into the hills, while the porter ran equally fast, although nearly in an opposite direction, so that, by these means, he finally made his escape with my bundles, of which I have no doubt he took excellent care, although this is a point I cannot determine, as I do not remember that I ever beheld him again. For myself, I was so hotly pursued by a swarm of the men vermin, who had come to the shore in boats, that I was very soon overtaken, bound hand and foot, and conveyed to the beast, which immediately swam out again into the middle of the sea. I am now bitterly repented of my folly in quitting a comfortable house to peril my life in such adventures as this, but regret being useless. I made the best of my condition, and exerted myself to secure the goodwill of the man-animal that owned the trumpet, and who appeared to exercise authority over his fellows. I succeeded so well in this endeavor that, in a few days, the creature bestowed upon me various tokens of his favor, and in the end even went to the trouble of teaching me the rudiments of what it was vain enough to denominate its language, so that, at length, I was enabled to converse with it readily, and came to make it comprehend the ardent desire I had of seeing the world. Washish, washish, squeak, Sinbad, hey diddle diddle, grunt, unt, grumble, hiss, fiss, whiss, said he to me one day after dinner. But I beg a thousand pardons, I had forgotten that your majesty is not conversant with the dialect of the cockneys, so the man-animals were called, I presume because their language formed the connecting link between that of the horse and that of the rooster. With your permission I will translate, washish, squashish, and so forth, that is to say, I am happy to find, my dear Sinbad, that you are really a very excellent fellow. We are now about doing a thing which is called circumnavigating the globe, and since you are so desirous of seeing the world, I will strain a point and give you a free passage upon back of the beast. When the Lady Scheherazade had proceeded thus far, relates the Isits Wurnot, the king turned over from his left side to his right, and said, It is, in fact, very surprising, my dear queen, that you admitted, hitherto, these latter adventures of Sinbad. You know I think them exceedingly entertaining and strange. The king, having expressed himself, we are told, the fair Scheherazade resumed her history in the following words. Sinbad went on in this manner with his narrative to the caliph. 
I thanked the man-animal for his kindness, and soon found myself very much at home on the beast, which swam at a prodigious rate through the ocean, although the surface of the latter is, in that part of the world, by no means flat, but round like a pomegranate, so that we went, so to say, either uphill or downhill, all the time. That, I think, was very singular, interrupted the king. Nevertheless, it is quite true, replied Scheherazade. I have my doubts, rejoined the king, but pray be so good as to go on with the story. I will, said the queen. The beast, continued Sinbad to the caliph, swam, as I have related, uphill and downhill, until, at length, we arrived at an island, many hundreds of miles in circumference, but which, nevertheless, had been built in the middle of the sea by a colony of little things like caterpillars. The Coralites Hum, said the king. Leaving the island, said Sinbad, for Scheherazade, it must be understood, took no notice of her husband's ill-mannered ejaculation. Leaving this island, we came to another where the forests were of solid stone, and so hard that they shivered to pieces the finest-tempered axes with which we endeavored to cut them down. One of the most remarkable natural curiosities in Texas is a petrified forest near the head of Pasigno River. It consists of several hundred trees in an erect position, all turned to stone. Some trees, now growing, are partly petrified. This is a startling fact for natural philosophers, and must cause them to modify the existing theory of petrification. Kennedy This discovery, at first discredited, has since been corroborated by the discovery of a completely petrified forest near the headwaters of the Cheyenne, or Xi'an River, which has its source in the Black Hills of the Rocky Chain. There is, scarcely, perhaps, a spectacle on the surface of the globe more remarkable, either in a geological or picturesque point of view, than that presented by the petrified forest near Cairo. The traveler, having passed the tombs of the caliphs, just beyond the gates of the city, proceeds to the southward, nearly at right angles to the road across the desert to Suez, and, after having traveled some ten miles up a low barren valley, covered with sand, gravel, and seashells, fresh as if the tide had retired but yesterday, crosses a low range of sand hills, which has, for some distance, run parallel to his path. The scene now presented to him is beyond conception singular and desolate, a mass of fragments of trees, all converted into stone, and when struck by his horse's hoof, ringing like cast iron, is seen to extend itself for miles and miles around him, in the form of a decayed and prostrate forest. The wood is of a dark brown hue, but retains its form in perfection, the pieces being from one to fifteen feet in length, and from half a foot to three feet in thickness, strewed so closely together, as far as the eye can reach, that an Egyptian donkey can scarcely thread its way through amongst them, and so natural that, were it in Scotland or Ireland, it might pass without remark for some enormous drained bog, on which the exhumed trees lay rotting in the sun. The roots and rudiments of the branches are, in many cases, nearly perfect, and in some, the wormholes eaten under the bark are readily recognizable. The most delicate of the sap vessels, and all the finer portions of the center of the wood, are perfectly entire, and bear to be examined with the strongest of magnifiers. The whole are so thoroughly solidified as to scratch glass and are capable of receiving the highest polish. Asiatic Magazine Hum, said the king, again, but Scheherazade, paying him no attention, continued in the language of Sinbad. Passing beyond this last island, we reached a country where there was a cave that ran to the distance of thirty or forty miles within the bowels of the earth, and that contained a greater number of far more spacious and more magnificent palaces 
than are to be found in all Damascus and Baghdad. From the roofs of these palaces there hung myriads of gems, like diamonds, but larger than men, and in among the streets of towers and pyramids and temples there flowed immense rivers as black as ebony, and swarming with fish that had no eyes. The Mammoth Cave of Kentucky Hum, said the king. We then swam into a region of the sea where we found a lofty mountain, down whose sides there streamed torrents of melted metal, some of which were twelve miles wide and sixty miles long. In Iceland, 1783. While from an abyss on the summit issued so vast a quantity of ashes that the sun was entirely blotted out from the heavens, and it became darker than the darkest midnight, so that when we were even at the distance of a hundred and fifty miles from the mountain, it was impossible to see the whitest object, however close we held it to our eyes. During the eruption of Hecla in 1766, clouds of this kind produced such a degree of darkness that, at Glaumba, which is more than fifty leagues from the mountain, people could only find their way by groping. During the eruption of Vesuvius in 1794, at Caserta, four leagues distance, people could only walk by the light of torches. On the 1st of May, 1812, a cloud of volcanic ashes and sand, coming from a volcano in the island of St. Vincent, covered the whole of Barbados, spreading over it so intense a darkness that, at midday, in the open air, one could not perceive the trees or other objects near him, or even a white handkerchief placed at the distance of six inches from the eye. Murray, page 212, Philadelphia edition. Hum, said the king. After quitting this coast, the beast continued his voyage until we met with a land in which the nature of things seemed reverse, for here we saw a great lake, at the bottom of which, more than a hundred feet beneath the surface of the water, there flourished in full leaf a forest of tall and luxuriant trees. In the year 1790, in the Caracas, during an earthquake, a portion of the granite soil sank and left a lake 800 yards in diameter, and from 80 to 100 feet deep. It was a part of the forest of Arapo, which sank, and the trees remained green for several months under the water. Murray, page 221. Who? said the king. Some hundred miles further on brought us to a climate where the atmosphere was so dense as to sustain iron or steel, just as our own does feather. The hardest steel ever manufactured may, under the action of a blowpipe, be reduced to an impalpable powder which will float readily in the atmospheric air. Fiddle-dee-dee, said the king. Proceeding still in the same direction, we presently arrived at the most magnificent region in the whole world. Through it there meandered a glorious river for several thousands of miles. This river was of unspeakable depth, and of a transparency richer than that of amber. It was from three to six miles in width, and its banks, which arose on either side to twelve hundred feet in perpendicular height, were crowned with ever-blossoming trees and perpetual sweet-scented flowers that made the whole territory one gorgeous garden. But the name of this luxuriant land was the Kingdom of Horror, and to enter it was inevitable death. The Region of the Niger, see Simona's Colonial Magazine. Humph, said the king. We left this kingdom in great haste, and, after some days, came to another, where we were astonished to perceive myriads of monstrous animals with horns resembling scythes upon their heads. These hideous beasts dig for themselves vast caverns in the soil of a funnel shape, and line the sides of them with rock, so disposed one upon the other that they fall instantly when trodden upon by other animals, thus precipitating them into the monster's dens. 
where their blood is immediately sucked, and their carcasses afterwards hurled contemptuously out to an immense distance from the caverns of death. The Mermelian Lion Ant The term monster is equally applicable to small abnormal things and to great, while such epithets as vast are merely comparative. The cavern of the Mermelian is vast in comparison with the whole of the common red ant. A grain of silex is also a rock. Pooh, said the king. Continuing our progress, we perceived a district with vegetables that grew not upon any soil, but in the air. The epidendrum, Flos aris, of the family of the orchidae, grows with merely the surface of its roots attached to a tree or other object, from which it derives no nutriment, subsisting altogether upon air. There were others that sprang from the substance of other vegetables. Note number two. The parasites, such as the wonderful Rafflesia R. Naldi, Others that derived their substance from the bodies of living animals. Note number three. Chu advocates a class of plants that grow upon living animals, the Plantae Epizoae. Of this class are the Fusi and Algae. Mr. J.B. Williams of Salem, Massachusetts, presented the National Institute with an insect from New Zealand with the following description. The hot, a decided caterpillar or worm, is found growing at the foot of the rata tree, with a plant growing out of its head. This most peculiar and most extraordinary insect travels up both the rata and periri trees, and, entering into the top, eats its way, perforating the trunk of the tree until it reaches the root. It then comes out of the root and dies, or remains dormant, and the plant propagates out of its head. The body remains perfect and entire, of a harder substance than when alive. From this insect the natives make a coloring for tattooing. And then again, there were others that glowed all over with intense fire. Note number four. In mines and natural caves we find a species of cryptogamous fungus that emits an intense phosphorescence. Others that move from place to place at pleasure. Note number five. The Orcus scabius and vallicinaria. And, what was still more wonderful, we discovered flowers that lived and breathed and moved their limbs at will and had, moreover, the detestable passion of mankind for enslaving other creatures and confining them in horrid and solitary prisons until the fulfillment of appointed tasks. Note number six. The corolla of this flower, Aristolochia clematitis, which is tubular but terminating upwards in a ligulate limb, is inflated into a globular figure at the base. The tubular part is internally beset with stiff hairs pointing downward. The globular part contains the pistil, which consists merely of a germin and stigma, together with the surrounding stamens. But the stamens, being shorter than the germin, cannot discharge the pollen so as to throw it upon the stigma, as the flower stands always upright till after impregnation. And hence, without some additional and peculiar aid, the pollen must necessarily fan down to the bottom of the flower. Now, the aid that nature has furnished in this case is that of the Tipita penicornis, a small insect, which, entering the tube of the corolla in quest of honey, descends to the bottom and rummages about till it becomes quite covered with pollen, but not being able to force its way out again, owing to the downward position of the hairs, which converge to a point like the wires of a mouse trap, and being somewhat impatient of its confinement, it brushes backwards and forwards, trying every corner till, after repeatedly traversing the stigma, it covers it with pollen sufficient for its impregnation, in consequence of which the flower soon begins to droop, and the hairs to shrink to the size of the tube, affecting an easy passage for the escape of the insect. 
Reverend P. Keith, System of Physiological Botany. Pshaw, said the king. Quitting this land, we soon arrived at another in which the bees and the birds are mathematicians of such genius and erudition that they give daily instructions in the science of geometry to the wise men of the empire. The king of the place having offered a reward for the solution of two very difficult problems, they were solved upon the spot, the one by the bees and the other by the birds. But the king, keeping their solution a secret, it was only after the most profound researches and labor and the writing of an infinity of big books during a long series of years that the men, mathematicians, at length arrived at the identical solutions which had been given upon the spot by the bees and by the birds. The bees, ever since bees were, have been constructing their cells with just such size, in just such number, and at just such inclinations, as it has been demonstrated, in a problem involving the profoundest mathematical principles, are the very sides, in the very number, and at the very angles, which will afford the creatures the most room which is compatible with the greatest stability of structure. During the latter part of the century, the question arose among mathematicians to determine the best form that can be given to the sails of the windmill, according to their varying distances from the revolving vanes, and likewise from the centers of their revolution. This is an excessively complex problem, for it is, in other words, to find the best possible position at an infinity of varied distances, and at an infinity of points on the arm. There were a thousand futile attempts to answer the query on the part of the most illustrious mathematicians, and when, at length, an undeniable solution was discovered, men found that the wing of a bird had given it with absolute precision ever since the first bird had traversed the air. Oh, my, said the king. We had scarcely lost sight of this empire when we found ourselves close upon another, from whose shores there flew over our heads a flock of fowls a mile in breadth and 240 miles long, so that, although they flew a mile during every minute, it required no less than four hours for the whole flock to pass over us, in which there were several millions of millions of fowl. He observed a flock of pigeons passing betwixt Frankfurt and the Indian Territory, one mile at least in breadth. It took up four hours in passing, which, at the rate of one mile per minute, gives a length of 240 miles, and, supposing three pigeons to each square yard, gives 2,230,272,000 pigeons. Travels in Canada and the United States by Lieutenant F. Hall. Oh, fie, said the king. No sooner had we got rid of these birds, which occasioned us great annoyance, than we were terrified by the appearance of a fowl of another kind, and infinitely larger than even the rocks which I met in my former voyages, for it was bigger than the biggest of the domes on your seraglio, O oh, most munificent of caliphs. This terrible fowl had no head that we could perceive, but was fashioned entirely of belly, which was of a prodigious fatness and roundness, of a soft-looking substance, smooth, shining, and striped with various colors. In its talons, the monster was bearing away to its eyrie in the heavens a house from which it had knocked off the roof, and in the interior of which we distinctly saw human beings, who, beyond doubt, were in a state of frightful despair at the horrible fate which awaited them. We shouted with all our might in the hope of frightening the bird into letting go of its prey, but it merely gave a snort or puff, as if of raid, and then let fall upon our heads a heavy sack which proved to be filled with sand. Stuff, said the king. It was just after this adventure that we encountered a continent of immense extent and prodigious solidity, but which, nevertheless, was supported entirely upon the back of a sky-blue cow that had no fewer than four hundred horns. 
The earth is upheld by a cow of a blue color, having horns four hundred in number. Sales Koran. That now I believe, said the king, because I have read something of the kind before in a book. We passed immediately beneath this continent, swimming in between the legs of the cow, and, after some hours, found ourselves in a wonderful country indeed, which, I was informed by the man-animal, was his own native land, inhabited by things of his own species. This elevated the man-animal very much in my esteem, and, in fact, I now began to feel ashamed of the contemptuous familiarity with which I had treated him, for I found that the man-animals in general were a nation of the most powerful magicians, who lived with worms in their brain. The entozoa, or intestinal worms, have repeatedly been observed in the muscles and in the cerebral substance of men. See Wyatt's Physiology, page 143. Which, no doubt, served to stimulate them by their most painful writhings and wrigglings to the most miraculous efforts of imagination. Nonsense, said the king. Among the magicians were domesticated several animals of very singular kinds. For example, there was a huge horse whose bones were iron and whose blood was boiling water. In place of corn, he had black stones for his usual food, and yet, in spite of so hard a diet, he was so strong and swift that he would drag a load more weighty than the grandest temples in the city, at a rate surpassing that of the flight of most birds. On the Great Western Railway between London and Exeter, a speed of 71 miles per hour has been attained. A train weighing 90 tons was whirled from Paddington to Ditcut, 53 miles, in 51 minutes. Twattle, said the king. I saw also among these people a hen without feathers, but bigger than a camel. Instead of flesh and bones, she had iron and brick. Her blood, like that of the horse, to whom in fact she was nearly related, was boiling water, and like him she ate nothing but wood or black stones. This hen brought forth very frequently a hundred chickens in the day, and, after birth, they took up their residence for several weeks within the stomach of their mother. The Echolobian Fa, la, said the king. One of this nation of mighty conjurers created a man out of brass and wood and leather, and endowed him with such ingenuity that he would have beaten at chess all the races of mankind with the exception of the great caliph, Harun al-Rashid. Maitzel's automaton chess player. Another of these magi constructed, of like material, a creature that put to shame even the genius of him who made it, for so great were its reasoning powers that, in a second, it performed calculations of so vast an extent that they would have required the united labor of 50,000 fleshy men for a year. Note number two, Babbage's calculating machine. But a still more wonderful conjurer fashioned for himself a mighty thing that was neither man nor beast, but which had brains of lead, intermixed with a black matter like pitch, and fingers that it employed with such incredible speed and dexterity, that it would have had no trouble in writing out 20,000 copies of the Koran in an hour, and this was so exquisite a precision, that in all the copies there should not be found one to vary from another by the breadth of the finest hair. This thing was of prodigious strength, so that it erected or overthrew the mightiest empires at a breath, but its powers were exercised equally for evil and for good. Ridiculous, said the king. Among this nation of necromancers there was also one who had in his veins the blood of the salamanders, for he made no scruple of sitting down to smoke his shibuk in a red-hot oven until his dinner was thoroughly roasted upon its floor. Chabert, and since him a hundred others. Another had the faculty of converting the common metals into gold without even looking at them during the process, 
Note number two, the electrotype. Another had such delicacy of touch that he made a wire so fine as to be invisible. Note number three, Wollaston made of platinum for the field of views in a telescope a wire one eighteen thousandths part of an inch in thickness. It could be seen only by means of the microscope. Another had such quickness of perception that he counted all the separate motions of an elastic body while it was springing backward and forward at the rate of 900 millions of times in a second. Note number four. Newton demonstrated that the retina beneath the influence of the violet ray of the spectrum vibrated 900 millions of times in a second. Absurd, said the king. Another of these magicians, by means of a fluid that nobody ever yet saw, could make the corpses of his friends brandish their arms, kick out their legs, fight, or even get up and dance at his will. Voltaic Pile Another had cultivated his voice to so great an extent that he could have made himself heard from one end of the world to another. Note number two, the electro-telegraph printing apparatus. Another had so long an arm that he could sit down in Damascus and indict a letter at Baghdad, or indeed at any distance whatsoever. Note number three. The electrotelegraph transmits intelligence instantaneously, at least as so far as regards any distance upon the earth. Another commanded the lightning to come down to him out of the heavens, and it came at his call, and served him for a plaything when it came. Another took two loud sounds and out of them made a silence. Another constructed a deep darkness out of two brilliant lights. Note number four. Common experiments in natural philosophy. If two red rays from two luminous points be admitted into a dark chamber so as to fall on a white surface and differ in their length by 0.0000258 of an inch, their intensity is doubled. So also if the difference in length be any whole number multiple of that fraction. A multiple of two and a quarter, three and a quarter, etc., gives an intensity equal to one ray only but a multiple by two and a half, three and a half, etc., gives the result of total darkness. In violet rays, similar effects arise when the difference in length is 0.000157 of an inch, and with all other rays, the results are the same, the difference varying with the uniform increase from the violet to the red. Analogous experiments in respect to sound produce analogous results. Another made ice in a red-hot furnace. Note number five. Place a platina crucible over a spirit lamp and keep it a red heat. Pour in some sulfuric acid, which, though the most volatile of bodies at a common temperature will be found to become completely fixed in a hot crucible, and not a drop evaporates, being surrounded by an atmosphere of its own, it does not, in fact, touch the sides. A few drops of water are now introduced, when the acid, immediately coming in contact with the heated sides of the crucible, flies off in sulfurous acid vapor, and so rapid is its progress, that the caloric of the water passes off with it, which falls a lump of ice to the bottom. By taking advantage of the moment before it is allowed to remelt, it may be turned out a lump of ice from a red-hot vessel. Another directed the light to paint his portrait, and the sun did. Note number six, the daguerreotype. Another took this luminary with the moon and the planets, and having first weighed them with scrupulous accuracy, probed into their depths and found out the solidity of the substance of which they were made. But the whole nation is, indeed, of so surprising a necromantic ability that not even their infants, 
nor their commonest cats and dogs have any difficulty in seeing objects that do not exist at all, or that for twenty millions of years before the birth of the nation itself had been blotted out from the face of creation. Note number seven. Although light travels 167,000 miles in a second, the distance of 61 Cygni, the only star whose distance is ascertained, is so inconceivably great that its rays would require more than 10 years to reach the Earth. For stars beyond this, 20 or even 1,000 years would be a moderate estimate. Thus, if they had been annihilated 20 or 1,000 years ago, we might still see them today by the light which started from their surface 20 or 1,000 years in the past. That many which we see daily are really extinct is not impossible, nor even improbable. Preposterous, said the king. The wives and daughters of these incomparably great and wise magi, continued Scheherazade, without being in any manner disturbed by these frequent and most ungentlemanly interruptions on the part of her husband, the wives and daughters of these eminent conjurers are everything that is accomplished and refined, and would be everything that is interesting and beautiful, but for an unhappy fatality that besets them, and from which not even the miraculous powers of their husbands and fathers has hitherto been adequate to save. Some fatalities come in certain shapes, and some in others, but this of which I speak has come in the shape of a crotchet. A what? said the king. A crotchet, said Scheherazade. One of the evil genii, who are perpetually upon the watch to inflict ill, has put it into the heads of these accomplished ladies that the thing which we describe as personal beauty consists altogether in the protuberance of the region which lies not very far below the small of the neck. Perfection of loveliness, they say, is in the direct ratio of the extent of this lump. Having been long possessed of this idea, and bolsters being cheap in that country, the days have long gone by since it was impossible to distinguish a woman from a dromedary. Stop, said the king. I can't take that, and I won't. You have already given me a dreadful headache with your lies. The day, too, I perceive, is beginning to break. How long have we been married? My conscience is getting to be troublesome again. And then that dromedary touch. Do you take me for a fool? Upon the whole, you might as well get up and be throttled. These words, I learned from the Izzets Urnot, both grieved and astonished Scheherazade. But, as she knew the king to be a man of scrupulous integrity, and quite unlikely to forfeit his word, she submitted to her fate with good grace. She derived, however, great consolation, during the tightening of the bowstring, from the reflection that much of the history remained still untold, and that the petulance of her brute of a husband had reaped for him a most righteous reward, in depriving him of many inconceivable adventures. The End End of chapter 2 The Thousand and Second Tale of Scheherazade Recording by Morgan Saletta The Collected Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Revit Edition, Volume 2 A Descent into the Maelstrom The ways of God in nature, as in providence, are not as our ways, nor are the models that we frame any way commensurate to the vastness, profundity, and unsearchableness of his works, which have a depth in them greater than the well of Democritus. Joseph Glanville We had now reached the summit of the loftiest crag. For some minutes 
the old man seemed too much exhausted to speak. Not long ago, said he at length, when I could have guided you on this route, as well as the youngest of my sons, but about three years past, there happened to me an event such as never happened to mortal man, or at least such as no man ever survived to tell of, and the six hours of deadly terror which I then endured have broken me up body and soul. You suppose me a very old man, but I am not. It took less than a single day to change these hairs from a jetty black to white, to weaken my limbs and to unstring my nerves, so that I tremble at the least exertion, and I am frightened at a shadow. Do you know I can scarcely look over this little cliff without getting giddy? The little cliff, upon whose edge he had so carelessly thrown himself down to rest, then the weighty portion of his body hung over it, while he was only kept from falling by the tenure of his elbow on its extreme and slippery edge, this little cliff arose, a sheer unobstructed precipice of black shining rock, some fifteen or sixteen hundred feet from the world of crags beneath us. Nothing would have tempted me to within half a dozen yards of its brink. In truth, so deeply was I excited by the perilous position of my companion, that I fell at full length upon the ground, clung to the shrubs around me, and dared not even glance upward at the sky, while I struggled in vain to divest myself of the idea that the very foundations of the mountain were in danger from the fury of the winds. It was long before I could reason myself into sufficient courage to sit up and look out into the distance. You must get over these fences, said the guide, for I have brought you here that you might have the best possible view of the scene of that event I mentioned, and to tell you the whole story with a spot just under your eye. We are now he continued, in that particularizing manner which distinguished him. We are now close upon the Norwegian coast, in the sixty-eighth degree of latitude, in the great province of Nordland, and in the dreary district of Lofoden. The mountain upon whose top we sit is Helsingen the Cloudy. Now raise yourself up a little higher, hold on to the grass if you feel giddy, so, and look out beyond the belt of vapour beneath us, into the sea. I looked dizzily, and beheld a wide expanse of ocean, whose waters wore so inky a hue as to bring at once to my mind the Nubian geographer's account of the Mare Tenebrarum, a panorama more deplorably desolate no human imagination can conceive. To the right and left, as far as the eye could reach, there lay outstretched, like ramparts of the world, lines of hurriedly black and beetling cliff, whose character of gloom was but the more forcibly illustrated by the surf, which reared high up against its white and ghastly crest, howling and shrieking forever. 
Just opposite the promontory upon whose apex we were placed, and at a distance of some five or six miles out at sea, there was visible a small, bleak-looking island, or more properly, its position was discernible through the wilderness or surge in which it was enveloped. But two miles nearer the land arose another of smaller size, hideously craggy and barren, and encompassed at various intervals by a cluster of dark rocks. The appearance of the ocean, in the space between more distant islands and the shore, had something very unusual about it. Although, at the time, so strong a gale was blowing landward, that a brig in the remote offing lay to under a double-reefed trysail, and constantly plunged a whole hurl out of sight, still there was here nothing like a regular swell, but only a short, quick, angry cross-dashing of water in every direction, as well in the teeth of the wind as otherwise. Of foam there was little, except in the immediate vicinity of the rocks. The island in the distance, resumed the old man, is called by the Norwegians Volk. The one midway is Moskwe. That a mile to the northward is Ambari. Yonder are Islesen, Hotham, Kailan, Swaven, and Buckholm. Further off, between Moskwe and Volk, are Otterholm, Flimen, Sandflesen, and Stockholm. These are the true names of the places, but why it has been thought necessary to name them at all is more than either you or I can understand. Do you hear anything? Do you see any change in the water? We had now been about ten minutes upon the top of Helsingen which we had ascended from the interior of Lofoden, so that we had caught no glimpse of the sea until it had burst upon us from the summit. As the old man spoke, I became aware of a loud and gradually increasing sound, like the moaning of a vast herd of buffaloes upon an American prairie. And at the same moment I perceived but what seemed in turn the chopping character of the ocean beneath us was rapidly changing into a current which set to the eastward. Even while I gazed, this current acquired a monstrous velocity. Each moment added to its speed, to its headlong impetuosity. In five minutes, the whole sea, as far as would, was lashed into ungovernable fury. But it was between Moscow and the coast that the main uproar held its sway. Here the vast bed of the waters, seamed and scarred into a thousand conflicting channels, burst suddenly into frenzied convulsion, heaving, boiling, hissing, gyrating in gigantic innumerable vortices, and all whirling and plunging on to the eastward, with a rapidity which water never elsewhere assumed except in precipitous descents. In a few minutes more, there came over the scene another radical alteration. The general surface grew so much more smooth, and the whirlpools, one by one, disappeared, while prodigious streaks of foam became apparent where none had been seen before. 
These trees at length spreading out to a great distance, and entering into combination, took unto themselves the directory motion of their subsided vortices, and seemed to form the germ of another more vast. Suddenly, very suddenly, this assumed a distinct and definite existence in a circle of more than a mile in diameter. The edge of the world was represented by a broad belt of gleaming spray, but no particle of this slipped into the mouth of the terrific funnel, whose interior, as far as the eye could fathom it, was a smooth, shining, and jet-black wall of water inclined to the horizon at an angle of some forty-five degrees, spinning dizzily round and round with a swaying and sweltering motion, and sending forth to the winds an appalling voice, half shriek, half roar, such as not even the mighty cataract of Niagara ever lifts up in its agony to heaven. The mountain trembled to its very base, and the rock rocked. I threw myself upon my face, and clung to the scant herbage in an excess of nervous agitation. This, said I at length, to the old man. This can be nothing else than a great whirlpool or the maelstrom. So it is sometimes termed, said he. We know regions calling the Moscow storm from the island of Moscow in the midway. The ordinary accounts of this vortex had by no means prepared me for what I saw. That of Jonas Ramus, which is perhaps the more circumstantial of any, cannot impart the faintest conception either of the magnificence or of the horror of the scene, or of the wild, bewildering sense of the novel which confounds the beholder. I am not sure from what point of view the writer in question surveyed it, nor at one time, but it could neither have been from the summit of Helsingen nor during the storm. There are some passages of his description, nevertheless, which may be quoted for the details, although their effect is exceedingly feeble in conveying an impression of the spectacle. Between Lofoden and Moscow, he says, the depth of the water is between thirty-six and forty fathoms, but on the other side, to Udver, Burg, this depth decreases so as not to afford a convenient passage for a vessel, without the risk of splitting on the rocks, which happens even in the calmest weather. When it is flawed, the stream runs up the country between Lofoden and Moscow with a boisterous rapidity. But the roar of its impetuous ebb to the sea is scarce equaled by the loudest, most dreadful cataracts, the noise being heard several leagues off, and the vortices or pits are of such an extent and depth that if a ship comes within its attraction, it is inevitably absorbed and carried down to the bottom, and there beat two pieces against the rocks. When the water relaxes, the fragments thereof are thrown up again. But these intervals of tranquillity are only at the turn of the ebb and flood, and in calm weather, and last but a quarter of an hour, its violence gradually returning. When the stream is most boisterous, 
and its fury heightened by a storm, it is dangerous to come within a Norway mile of it. Boats, yachts, and ships have been carried away by not guarding against it before they were within its reach. It likewise happens frequently that whales come too near the stream and are overpowered by its violence. And then, but it is impossible to describe their howlings and bellowings in their fruitless struggles to disengage themselves. A bear once, attempting to swim from Lofden to Moscow, was caught by the stream and borne down while he roared terribly so as to be heard on shore. Large stocks of firs and pine trees, after being absorbed by the current, Right again broken and torn to such a degree as if bristles grew upon them. This plainly shows the bottom to consist of craggy rocks among which they are whirled to and fro. This stream is regulated by the flux and reflux of the sea, it being constantly high and low water every six hours. In the year 1645, early in the morning of Sixagesima Sunday, raged with such noise and impetuosity that the very stones of the house on the coast fell to the ground. In regard to the depth of the water, I could not see how this could have been ascertained at all in the immediate vicinity of the vortex. The forty fathoms must have reference only to portions of the channel close upon the shore either of Moscow or Lofoden. The depth in the centre of the Moscow storm must be immeasurably greater. And no better proof of this fact is necessary than can be obtained from even a sidelong glance into the abyss of the world which may be had from the highest crag of Helsingen. Looking down from this pinnacle upon the howling phlegathon below, I could not help smiling at the simplicity with which the honest Jones Ramus records as much difficult of belief, the anecdotes of the whales and bears. For it appeared to me, in fact, self-evident thing, that the largest ship of the land in existence, coming with an influence of that deadly attraction, could resist it as little as a feathery hurricane, and must disappear bodily and at once. The attempts to account for the phenomenon, some of which I remember, seemed to me sufficiently plausible in perusal, now wore a very different and unsatisfactory aspect. The idea generally received is that this, as well as three smaller vortices among the Faroe Islands, have no other cause than the collision of waves rising and falling, at flux and reflux against a ridge of rocks and shelves, which confines the water so that it precipitates itself like a cataract. And thus, the higher the flood rises, the deeper must the fall be, and the natural result of all is a whirlpool or vortex, the prodigious suction of which is sufficiently known by lesser experiments. These are the words of the Encyclopaedia Britannica. Kircher and others imagine that in the center of the channel of the Maelstrom is an abyss penetrating the globe and issuing in some very remote part, the Gulf of Bosnia being somewhat decidedly named in one instance. This opinion, idle in itself, was the one to which, as I gazed, my imagination most readily assented. 
and mentioning it to the guide, I was rather surprised to hear him say that, although it was the view almost universally entertained on the subject by the Norwegians, it nevertheless was not his own. As to the former notion, he confessed his inability to comprehend it, and here I agreed with him, for, however conclusive on paper, it becomes altogether unintelligible and even absurd amid the thunder of the abyss. You've had a good look at the world now, said the old man, and if you will creep round this crag so as to get in slee and deaden the roar of the water, I will tell you a story that will convince you I ought to know something of the Moscow Strong. I placed myself as desired, and he proceeded. Myself and my two brothers once owned a schooner rigged smack of about seventy tons burthen with which we were in the habit of fishing among the islands beyond Moscow, nearly to Vulg. In all violent eddies at sea, there is good fishing at proper opportunities, if one has only the courage to attempt it. But among the whole of the Lofoden coastmen, we three were the only ones who made a regular business of going out to the islands, as I tell you. The usual grounds are a great way lower down to the southward, there, fish can be got at all hours, without much risk, and therefore these places are preferred. The choice spots over here among the rocks, however, not only yield the finest variety, but in far greater abundance, so that we often got in a single day, where the more timid of the craft could not scrape together in a week. In fact, we made it a matter of desperate speculation, the risk of life standing instead of labor, and courage answering for capital. We kept the smack in a curve about five miles higher up the coast than this, and it was our practice, in fine weather, to take advantage of the fifteen minutes slack to push across the main channel of the Moskwistrol, far above the pool, and then drop down upon anchorage somewhere near Otterholm or Sunflesen, where the eddies are not so violent as elsewhere. Here we used to remain until nearly time for slack water again, when we weighed and made for home. We never set out upon this expedition without a steady side-wind for going and coming, one that we felt sure would not fail us before our return, and we seldom made a miscalculation upon this point. Twice, during six years, we were forced to stay all night at anchor on account of a dead calm, which is a rare thing indeed just about here, and once we had to remain on the grounds nearly weeks, starving to death owing to a gale which blew up shortly after arrival and made the channel too boisterous to be thought of. Upon this occasion we should have been driven out to sea in spite of everything, but the whirlpools threw us round round so violently that at length we fouled our anchor and dragged it. If it had not been that we had drifted to one of the innumerable cross-currents, here today and gone tomorrow, which drove us under the lee of Flemen, where the good luck brought up. I could not tell you the twentieth part of the difficulties we encountered on the grounds. It is a bad spot being, even in good weather, but we made shift always to run the gauntlet of the Moscow Strom itself without accident, although at times my heart has been in my mouth when we happened to be a minute or so behind or before the slack. The wind sometimes was not as strong as we thought it as startling, and then we made rather less way than we could wish, while the current rendered the smack unmanageable. My eldest brother had a son, eighteen years old, 
and I had two stout boys of my own. These would have been of the great assistance at such times in using the sweeps, as well as afterwards in fishing, but somehow, although we ran the risk ourselves, we had another heart to let the young ones get into the danger. For after all is said and done, it was a horrible danger, and that is the truth. It is now within a few days or three years since what I am going to tell you occurred. It was on the tenth day of July, eighteen, a day which the people of this part of the world will never forget, for it was one in which blew the most terrible hurricane that ever came out of the heavens. And yet all the morning, and indeed until late in the afternoon, there was a gentle and steady breeze from the southwest, while the sun shone brightly, so that the oldest seaman among us could not have foreseen what was to follow. The three of us, my two brothers and myself, had crossed over the islands about two o'clock p.m., and had soon nearly loaded the smack with fine fish, which we all remarked, were more plenty that day than we had ever known them. It was just seven by my watch when we weighed and started for home so as to make the worst of the storm slack water which we knew would be at eight. We set out with a fresh wind on our starboard quarter for sometimes panked along at a great rate never dreaming of danger for indeed we saw not the slightest reason to apprehend it. All at once we were taken aback by a breeze from over Helsingen. This was most unusual, something that had never happened to us before, and I began to feel a little uneasy, not exactly knowing why. We put the boat on the wind, but could make no headway at all for the eddies, and I was upon the point of proposing to return to the anchorage. When looking astern, we saw the whole horizon covered with a singular copper-colored cloud that rose with the most amazing velocity. In the meantime, the breeze that had headed us off fell away, and we were dead becalmed, drifting about in every direction. This state of things, however, did not last long enough to give us time to think about it. In less than a minute, the storm was upon us. In less than two, the sky was entirely overcast. And what with this and the driving spray, it became suddenly so dark that we could not see each other in a smack. Such a hurricane as then blew, it is folly to attempt describing. The oldest seamen in Norway never experienced anything like it. We had let ourselves go by the run before it cleverly took us, but at the first puff both our masts went by the board as if they had been sold off. The mainmast taken with it my youngest brother had lashed himself to it for safety. Our boat was the lightest feather of the thing that ever set upon water. It had a complete flush deck, with only a small hatch near the bow, and this hatch it had always been our custom to batten down when about to cross a storm, by way of precaution against the chopping seas. But for this circumstance we should have found it at once, for we lay entirely buried for some moments. 
how my elder brother escaped destruction I cannot say, for I never had an opportunity of ascertaining. For my part, as soon as I had let the foresail run, I threw myself flat on deck, with my feet against the narrow gunwale of the bow, and with my hands grasping a ring bolt near the foot of the foremast. It was mere instinct that prompted me to do this, which was undoubtedly the very best thing I could have done, for I was too much flurried to think. For some moments we were completely deluged, as I say, and all this time I held my breath and clung to the boat. When I could stand it no longer, I raised myself upon my knees, still keeping hold of my hands, and thus got my head clear. Presently, our little boat gave herself a shake, just as a dog does in coming out of the water, and thus rid herself in some measure of the sea. I was now trying to get the better of the stupor that had come over me, and to collect my senses, so as to see what was to be done, when I felt somebody grasp my arm. It was my elder brother, and my heart leaped for joy, for I had made sure that he was overboard. But the next moment all this joy was turned into horror, for he put his mouth close to my ear, and screamed out the word, Moscow Strong! No one ever will know what my feelings were at that moment. I shook from head to foot, as if I had had the most violent fit of the ague. I knew what he meant by that one word well enough, and knew what he wished to make me understand. With the wind that now drove us on, we were bound for the world of the storm, and nothing could save us. You perceive that in crossing the storm channel, we always went a long way up above the world, even in the calmest weather and then had to wait and watch carefully for the slack. But now we were driving right upon the pool itself, and it's such a hurricane as this. To be sure, I thought, we shall get there just about the slack. There is some little hope in that. But in the next moment I cursed myself for being so great a fool as to dream of hope at all. I knew very well that we were doomed had we been ten times in ninety gunship. By this time, the first fury of the tempest had spent itself, or perhaps we did not feel it so much as we scudded before it, but at all events the seas, which at first had been kept down by the wind, and lay flat and frothing, now got up into absolute mountains. A singular change, too, had come over the heavens. Around it in every direction it was still as black as pitch, but nearly overhead there burst out all at once a circular rift of clear sky, or as clear as I ever saw, and of a deep bright blue, and through it there blazed forth the full moon with a luster that I never before knew her to wear. She lit up everything about us with the greatest distinctness. But, oh God, what a scene it was to light up. I now made one or two attempts to speak to my brother, but in some manner which I could not understand, the din had so increased that I could not make him hear a single word, although I screamed at the top of my voice in his ear. Presently he shook his head, looking as pale as death, and held up one of his finger, as if to say, Listen. 
At first I could not make out what he meant, but soon a hideous thought flashed upon me. I dragged my watch from its fob, it was not going. I glanced at its face by the moonlight, then burst into tears I flung it far away into the ocean. It had run down at seven o'clock. We were behind the time of the slack, and the whirl of the storm was in full fury. When a boat is well built, properly trimmed, and not deep laden, the waves in a strong gale, which is going large, seem always to slip from beneath her which appears very strange to a landsman, and this is what is called riding in sea frames. Well, so far we had ridden the swells very cleverly, but presently a gigantic sea happened to take us right under the counter and bore us with it as it rose, up, up, as if into the sky. I would not have believed that any wave could rise so high. Then down we came with a sweep, a slide, and a plunge that made me feel sick and dizzy, as if I was falling from some lofty mountain top in a dream. But while we were up, I had thrown a quick glance around, and that one glance was all sufficient. I saw our exact position in an instant. The Moscow-Strom whirlpool was about a quarter of a mile dead ahead, but no more like the everyday Moscow-Strom than the world as you now see it is like a mirage. If I had not known where we were, what we had to expect, I should not have recognized the place at all, as it was I involuntarily closed my eyes in horror. The lids clenched themselves together as if in a spasm. It could not have been more than two minutes afterward until we suddenly felt the wave subside and were enveloped in foam. The boat, in a sharp half turn to larboard, and then shot off in its new direction like a thunderbolt. At the same moment, the roaring noise of the water was completely drowned in a kind of shrill shriek. Such a sound as you might imagine given out by the waste pipes of many thousand steam vessels letting out their steam altogether. We were now with a belt of surf that always surrounds the world, and I thought, of course, that another moment would plunge us into the abyss, down which we could only see distinctly on account of the amazing velocity with which we were borne along. The boat did not seem to sink into the water at all but to skim like an air bubble upon the surface of the surge. Her starboard side was next to the world, and on the larboard arose the world of ocean we had left, still like a huge writhing wall between us and the horizon. It may appear strange, but now, when we were in the very jaws of the gulf, I felt more composed than when we were only approaching it. 
Having made up my mind to hope no more, I got rid of a great deal of that terror unmanned me at first. I suppose it was despair that strung my nerves. It may look like boasting, but what I tell you is truth. I began to reflect how magnificent a thing it was to die in such a manner, and how foolish it was in me to think of so paltry a consideration as my own individual life, in view of so wonderful a manifestation of God's power. I do believe that I blushed with shame when this idea crossed my mind. After a little while, I became possessed with the keenest curiosity about the world itself. I positively felt a wish to explore its depth, even at the sacrifice I was going to make. My principal grief was that I should never be able to tell my old companions on shore about the mysteries I should see. These, no doubt, were single fancies to occupy a man's mind in such extremity, and I have often thought since. But the revolutions of the boat around the pool might have rendered me a little light-headed. There was another circumstance which tended to restore my self-possession, and this was the cessation of the wind, which couldn't reach us in our present situation. For as you saw yourself, the belt of surf is considerably lower than the general bed of the ocean. Now this latter now towered above us, a high, black, mountainous ridge. If you have never been at sea in a heavy gale, you can form no idea of the confusion of mind occasioned by the wind and spray together. The blind deafness strangle you and take away all power of action and reflection. But we were now in a great measure rid of these annoyances, just as death condemned felons in prison are allowed petty indulgences, forbidding them while their doom is yet uncertain. How often we made the circuit of the belt it is impossible to say. We careered round and round for perhaps an hour, flying rather than floating, getting gradually more and more into the middle of the surge, and then nearer and nearer to its horrible inner edge. All this time I had never let go of the ring bolt. My brother was at a stern, holding on to a small empty water cask which had been securely lashed under the coop of the counter, I was the only thing on deck that hadn't been swept overboard when the gale first took us. As we approached the brink of the pit, he let go his hold upon this, and made for the ring from which, in the agony of his terror, he endeavoured to force my hands, as it was not large enough to afford us both a secure grasp. I never felt deeper griefs than when I saw him attempt this act. Although I knew he was a madman when he did it, a raving maniac through fright. I did not care, however, to contest the point with him. I knew it could make no difference whether either of us held him at all. So I let him have the bolt and went astern to the cask. This there was no great difficulty in doing, for the smack flew round steadily enough and upon an even keel only swaying to and fro with the immense sweeps and swelters of the world. Scarcely had I secured myself in my new possession when we gave a wild lurch to starboard and rushed headlong into the abyss. I muttered a hurried prayer to God and thought all was over. And as I felt the sickening sweep of the descent, I had instinctively tightened my hold upon the barrel and closed my eyes. For some seconds I dared not open them, 
while I expected instant destruction, and wondered that I was not already in my death struggles with the water. But moment after moment elapsed. I still lived. The sense of falling had ceased, and the motion of the vessel seemed much as it had been before, while in the belt of foam, with the exception that she now lay more long. I took courage and looked once again upon the scene. Never shall I forget the sensations of awe, horror, and admiration with which I gazed about me. The boat appeared to be hanging as if by magic midway down upon the interior surface of a funnel vast in circumference, prodigious in depth, and whose perfectly smooth sides might have been mistaken for ebony, but for the bewildering rapidity with which they spun around, and for the gleaming and ghastly radiance they shot forth as the rays of the full moon. From that circular rift amid the clouds which I have already described, streamed in a flood of golden glory along the black walls, and far away down into the inmost recesses of the abyss. At first I was too much confused to observe anything accurately. The general burst of terrific grandeur was all that I beheld. When I recovered myself a little, however, my gaze fell instinctively downward. In this direction I was able to obtain an unobstructed view from the manner in which the smack hung on to the inclined surface of the pool. She was quite upon an even keel, and that is to say, her deck lay in a plane parallel with that of the water. But this latter sloped at an angle of more than forty-five degrees, so that we seemed to be lying upon our beam ends. I could not help observing, nevertheless, that I had scarcely more difficulty in maintaining my hold and footing in this situation than if we had been upon a dead level, and this, I suppose, was owing to the speed in which we revolved. The rays of the moon seemed to search the very bottom of the profound gulf, but still I could make out nothing distinctly on account of the thick mist in which everything there was enveloped, and over which there hung a magnificent rainbow like that narrow and tottering bridge which Mussulmans say is the only pathway between time and eternity. This mist or spray was no doubt occasioned by the clashing of the great walls of the funnel as they all met together at the bottom, but the yell that went up to the heavens from out of the mist I dare not attempt to describe. Our first slide into the abyss itself from the belt of foam above had carried us a great distance down the slope, but our further descent was by no means proportionate. Round and round we swept, not with any uniform movement, but in dizzying swings and jerks that sent us sometimes only a few hundred yards, sometimes nearly the complete circuit of the world. Our progress downward each revolution was slow but very perceptible. Looking about me upon the wide waste of liquid ebb, I perceived that our boat was not the only object in the embrace of the world. Both above and below us were visible fragments of vessels, large masses of building timber and trunks of trees, with many smaller articles, such as pieces of house furniture, broken boxes, barrels, and staves. I have already described the unnatural curiosity which had taken the place of my original terrors. It appeared to grow upon me as I drew nearer 
and nearer to my dreadful doom, I now began to watch with a strange interest the numerous things that floated in our company. I must have been delirious, for I even sought amusement in speculating upon the relative velocities of their several descents through the form below. This filtering, I found myself at one time saying, will certainly be the next thing that takes the awful plunge and disappears. But then I was disappointed to find that a wreck of a Dutch merchant ship overtook it and went down before. At length, after making several guesses of this nature, and being deceived in all, this fact, the fact of my invariable miscalculation, set me upon a train of reflection that made my limbs again tremble and my heart beat heavily once more. It was not a new terror that thus affected me, but the dawn of a more exciting hope. This hope arose partly from memory and partly from present observation. I called to mind the great variety of buoyant matter that strewed the coast of Lofoden, having been absorbed and then thrown forth by the Moscow storm. By far the greater number of the articles were shattered in the most extraordinary way, so chafed and roughened as to have the appearance of being stuck full of splinters. But then I distinctly recollected that there were some of them which were not disfigured at all. Now I could not account for this difference except by supposing the roughened fragments were the only ones which had been completely absorbed, but the others had entered the world as Olaid appeared at the tide, or, for some reason, had descended so slowly after entering, that they did not reach the bottom before the turn of the flood came, or the ebb, as the case might be. I conceived it possible, in either instance, that they might thus be whirled up again to the level of the ocean, without undergoing the fate of those which had been drawn in more early, or absorbed more rapidly. I made also three important observations. The first was that, as a general rule, the larger the bodies were, the more rapid their descent. The second, that between two masses of equal extent, the one spherical and the other of any other shape, the superiority in speed of descent was with a sphere. The third, that between two masses of equal size, one cylindrical and the other of any other shape, the cylinder was absorbed the more slowly. Since my escape, I've had several conversations on this subject with an old schoolmaster of the district, and it was from him that I learned the use of the words cylinder and sphere. He explained to me, although I have forgotten explanation, how what I observed was in fact the natural consequence of the forms of the floating fragments, and showed me how it happened that a cylinder, swimming in a vortex, offered more resistance to its suction, and was drawn in with greater difficulty than any equally bulky body of any form whatever. There was one startling circumstance which went a great way of enforcing these observations and rendering me anxious to turn them to account, and this was that at every revolution we passed something like a barrel 
or else the yard or the mast of a vessel. While many of these things, which had been on our level when I first opened my eyes upon the wonders of the whirlpool, were now high up above us, and seemed to have moved but little from their original station, I no longer hesitated what to do. I resolved to lash myself securely to the water cask upon which I now held, to cut it loose from the counter, and to throw myself with it into the water. I attracted my brother's attention by signs, pointed to the floating barrels that came near us, and did everything in my power to make him understand what I was about to do. I thought at length that he comprehended my design, but whether this was the case or not, he shook his head despairingly, and refused to move from his station by the ring-bolt. It was impossible to reach him. The emergency admitted of no delay, and so with a bitter struggle I resigned him to his fate, fastened myself to the cask by means of the lashings which secured it to the counter, and precipitated myself with it into the sea, without another moment's hesitation. The result was precisely what I had hoped it might be. As it is myself, now tell you this tale, as you see that I did escape, and as you are already in possession of the mode in which the escape was effected, I must therefore anticipate all that I have further to say, I will bring my story quickly to conclusion. It might have been an hour, or thereabout, after my quitting the smack, when, having descended to a vast distance beneath me, it made three or four wild gyrations in rapid succession, and bearing my loved brother with it, plunged headlong, at once and forever, into the chaos of foam below. The barrel to which I was attached sunk very little further than half a distance between the bottom of the gulf and the spot at which I leaped overboard before a great change took place in the character of the whirlpool. The slope of the sides of the vast funnel became momently less and less steep. The gyrations of the world grew gradually less and less violent. By degrees the frost and the rainbow disappeared, and the bottom of the gulf seemed slowly to uprise. The sky was clear, the wind had gone down and the full moon was setting radiantly in the west, when I found myself on the surface of the ocean, full view of the shores of Lofoden, and above the spot where the pool of the Moskostrum had been. It was the hour of the slack, but the sea still heaved in mountainous waves from the effects of the hurricane. I was borne violently into the channel of the storm, and in a few minutes was hurried down the coast into the grounds of the fishermen. A boat picked me up, exhausted from fatigue, and, now that the danger was removed, speechless from the memory of its horror. Those who drew me on board were my old mates and daily companions, 
but they knew me no more than they would have known a traveller from a spirit land. My hair, which had been raven black the day before, was as white as you see it now. They say, too, that the whole expression of my countenance had changed. I told them my story. They did not believe it. I now tell it to you, and I can scarcely expect you to put more faith in it than did the merry fishermen of Lofoden. End of a descent into the maelstrom. Recording by Maria Tafidis. Near which we were thus born, 